As we continue to sit quietly, I'd like to invite our group practice that we typically do at the end of the silent session of having a chance, if you wish, to speak about an individual or situation, group, part of the world where there's a need for care or concern on the one hand or where there's a reason for appreciation or celebration or gratitude on the other. In both cases, the person can be oneself, can offer or express gratitude, for example, for something that's there for you. We don't use the mic with this, so it helps uh, greatly if if, uh, those speaking can make a strong effort to speak two or three times as loudly as usual so that people on the other side of the hall might hear be on the brief side, but still give enough sense of what's happening so we can understand.
If anyone else would like to speak, now is the time. So, good morning, and um, again, sorry I was late. You got the word, uh, I come from uh, the East Bay, I live in Berkeley, and there was um, uh, about a 35-minute delay at the bridge, which was, uh, has only happened at that time once in the last two years, but it happened today. Anyone else come from the East Bay? Yeah. Yeah, not sure what it was. Do you have any? Wasn't? Who knows? Anyway, uh, here I am, and but I was um, I was practicing in my car, <laughs> and so and I know. Uh, thank you, Pamela, for uh, helping us to get going, and um, I was able to notify the front office. So. In any case, again, for anyone whom I haven't met, my name is Donald Rothberg, one of the teachers here at Spirit Rock, and I believe that Pamela had people here for the first time introduce themselves, so we've done that, and uh, yeah, just want to welcome everyone. Uh, Typically, it's either I or Sylvia Borstein here on Wednesday mornings. I'll be here in three weeks again. Sylvia will be here most of the next five weeks, I think or so, uh, four or five weeks. And I'll be here again in three weeks, I think on May 1st. Uh, and then uh, I would just make some announcements as usual. I have material on the table. I have a few copies of a book I did about connecting inner work with social service and social change called The Engaged Spiritual Life, which I typically bring a few copies of and uh, there's an envelope there if you're interested in buying it. If you buy it, I'll sign it. <laughs> okay. And then some flyers for other events uh, upcoming. I think the next one that I'm doing here is a two-day event on working skillfully with conflict, which I'm uh, doing with a man named Stephen Folder, who's a teacher in Israel, who's done a lot of frontline work collaboratively with Palestinians and will tell some of those stories. That's uh, May 18th and 19th. And then uh, I think events on speech practice, uh, a day long in July and a retreat in August, a non-residential retreat in Berkeley. And then I think a three-day more advanced retreat called Things Are Not As They Appear. So we, do, we spend three days looking into that. <laughs> okay, so I think that's, that's it for me. 
Uh, any other announcements? Please. Thank you. Any other announcements? Okay, so let's... There's $2 in the gender-neutral bathroom. There's two, so if you're missing a couple of... Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, maybe they can go in the homeless bathroom. Yeah. It's not claimed by noon. <laughs> okay, any other announcements? Okay, so let's take uh, have a little bit of a break, about uh, 10 minutes or so. Let's come back a little bit before 11. We'll have some bells ring out, rung out in the foyer. I'll ring some bells here maybe uh, three or four minutes before we start again. And again, the format is typically there'll be, there's a talk and uh, discussion, which it will be the format today. <laughs> okay, thanks. So we'll come back in about 10 minutes for the, for the talk and discussion.
Do we have someone starting the recording? Do anyone do you know how to do that? Yeah. Well, we want, but we want to start it at the beginning of the talk, not not have a three-hour recording or two-hour recording. Anyway, let's let's forget it for now. Let's uh, uh, what? What? They can, yeah. It's not always, not always, doesn't always happen. <laughs> okay. Okay. So. So two times ago, um, I started a sequence called uh, From the Ordinary Habitual Mind to the Buddha Mind. And I gave uh, 10 parameters, essentially, of how practice works with different aspects of our experience. Uh, And I looked... Last time, we looked in some depth at the first of these. The first area that uh, I looked at was how our ordinary habitual thinking gets transformed. And uh, the previous time, I I had given the 10 areas that I was uh, saw as the way things changed. And these had come to me like the night before. I didn't know what I was going to talk about. And these 10 aspects came to me and I said, whoa, that's, I should share that. <laughs> and then, then I thought, this is pretty good for a series. This is like an overview of practice. And so the 10 aspects were, and 10 is also a good number. You know, it has some precedence in Western as well as Asian traditions. You know, uh, the book that I did, The Engaged Spiritual Life, I originally had 11 chapters and the editor said, no, <laughs> 10. <laughs> so, the, so the 10 were how we transform our ordinary habitual thinking. The second, which I'll look at today, was how we transform the ordinary habitual sense of the body. And then I also mentioned how what we might call the heart is, or the, the 
how the emotions are, the, the heart energy. The fourth was a sense of an independent, separate self. The fifth uh, aspect of the ordinary habitual mind that gets transformed is the way that the, our ordinary minds are very much pushed and pulled by unconscious forces. A lot of our behavior is driven by unconscious material of both a personal kind and of a kind that comes from social conditioning. The sixth is related to that, that there's pretty intense social conditioning that we have, particularly around race, gender, sexual orientation, age, you know, educational level, class, all sorts of things, you know. 10 or 20 main parameters that influences us a lot. And that potentially also gets transformed. A seventh is that we tend to have a sense of independent self and then separate independent objects out there. We're getting towards a little more of the subtle as we go on here. And that gets transformed. We also transform more rigid understandings of time, of past, present, and future. And our whole sense of time gets transformed. And uh, a ninth is the way that we are typically in the habitual mind driven by what we can call reactivity, grasping after the pleasant, wanting the pleasant in our lives and pushing away the unpleasant. How that drives our behavior. And then the last is that we're not, we might say, in touch with the sacred. We're not in touch with the deep, sacred nature of being. And so, these are ten. We probably could have others. These are ten uh, ways, or they point to ten ways in which our practice transforms us. And we could spend ten weeks on each of the ten. <laughs> I realized last time we looked at the nature of the ordinary, habitual thinking that we do. And again, one of the main ways that our practice in all its dimensions uh, transforms us is that we work with, uh, uh, we work to transform our thinking process. For many of us, this is to transform the way that we're dominated by thinking. And a lot of this is cultural, that we're dominated by the thinking process. Again, I think last time I mentioned uh, the response from a Thai teacher, Achan Buddhadasa, who, uh, who, whom I met once and was at his monastery. He died in 1993. He was once asked, what do you think of Western civilization? People are sometimes asked these broad questions. <laughs> and he said, lost in thought. <laughs> and again, I, I almost always mentioned that also. Gandhi was also asked what he thought of Western civilization. And he says, he said, it would be a good idea. <laughs> so, so in our, in our culture, you know, again, this isn't everyone, but probably the vast majority of us are dominated by thinking, thinking a good amount of the time. And it's probably accelerated with, uh, all the different devices that we have, the different, you know, all the electronics that we work with, 
You know, it's uh, when I when I go on the public transportation system, BART, you know, Bay Area uh, Rapid Transit, uh, and I go and sit down. It's unusual to see more than ten or twenty percent of the people not looking at their cell phones. That's unusual. And again, some good things happening. You know, it's not it's obviously not all negative, but just that way that we're drawn in to thinking and also a kind of thinking that's disembodied, that's virtual, to use the current term. And, you know, we have also the, uh, the way historically in which thinking has been separated out in the last uh, three or four hundred years, which has some positive aspects, that thinking has been separated from religious dogma, and there's been the development of science and reason and rationality to that would presumably um, dictate uh, how we work with uh, society and public events. You know, that was, some people interpret that was the basis of the, uh, the revolutions, the many revolutions in different cultures were to help us look at uh, dealing with social issues in a more rational basis. Uh, obviously, there's been a, a, some backsliding there uh, recently. You know, and uh, one of my frustrations, I once worked in the U.S. Congress, and one of my great frustrations was that, was that people were not interested, I thought, in actually dealing with issues. It was pretty shocking. I did that as a college student. I was a summer working in the Congress, and it was, it was very frustrating because uh, what was dominating the politicians, uh, the people who were our representatives, was not trying to deal with the issues. It was doing what would lead to uh, re-election and power. And I'm afraid that hasn't changed. You know, so there was very little actual, uh, uh, let's look straightforwardly at the issues and find out the best way to deal with them. There were some people who were aware of that, but they were not the representatives. They were the uh, people on the congressional staffs. They knew what to do. But most of what was important to do was impossible politically. So, you know, it's, uh, so that, that is sort of uh, what uh, some of the advantages of clear thinking not really so possible, unfortunately. And it's, of course when we think of many issues, but maybe especially climate disruption, it's, you know, it's almost uh, criminal to not attend to what needs to be attended to. So I don't need to tell you that, I'm sure. So we have this domination by thinking. We have attachment to views. This is the ordinary habitual mind, dominated by thinking, thinking disconnected from the body, emotions, and so forth, attachment to views, and often thinking is caught up in delusion, not seeing clearly. Uh, you know, and uh, in the traditional Buddhist sense, this was understood as the being caught up in seeing permanence where there's impermanence, seeing, thinking that something will lead to happiness when it leads to suffering, and also being caught up in a narrow sense of self when there's more, when, you, when the wise would see more of a sense of interdependence. So that's sort of the 
human condition, especially the contemporary condition of the ordinary habitual mind, connected with a lot of our issues and problems and uh, suffering. And so the, you know, the, the structure of, of working with each of these ten factors is to first look at what's the situation, what's the nature of the ordinary habitual mind in this parameter, and then what does it become when it uh, uh, becomes Buddha mind? And then how do we get there? <laughs> That's sort of the three aspects that I'm talking about in each of these talks. And so uh, with uh, the ordinary habitual thinking, uh, it's possible to think much less. You know, I think I mentioned last time how in my own personal experience, I maybe have 20% the amount of the thinking that I used to. Much better quality, in in my view. I have to ask people around me (laughs) whether that's accurate. But, you know, we become less dominated by thinking. We're able to use thinking more as a tool than have it be our master. And we we use that tool for the sake of wisdom and compassion, or guided, we should say, by wisdom and compassion. So thinking isn't the problem. Sometimes in meditative circles, we think thinking is the problem, get rid of it. Not the case. Rather, can, I, can we have thinking that's guided by wisdom? And we actually use thinking quite a bit in our meditation, as I mentioned last time. We have investigation. It's very helpful to keep on asking, what's happening? What's going on right now? What's my attitude in my mind? Very helpful to use thinking to help uh, move to wisdom. But we learn how to use thinking and views again without getting attached to it or dominated by it. That's probably the core way of talking about what develops. Um, we also develop the ability to be concentrated when we, when we want to, uh, for a particular reason, to stop thinking after t- sufficient training and concentration, that's possible. It's very helpful at certain times. We just need to do something, we have to do a task, and to have the capacity to really cut through thinking and to stop it, at least temporarily, uh, is a helpful tool. You know, if we're, uh, so it doesn't invade uh, other parts of our lives. And ultimately, it's possible to go very deeply into the nature of things and, in a sense, go beyond thinking. This is from the uh, third Zen patriarch. He said, do not search for the truth. I mentioned this last time. Do not search for the truth. Only cease to cherish opinions. When no discriminating thoughts arise, the old mind ceases to exist. If you wish to move in the one way, do not dislike even the world of senses and ideas. To accept them fully is identical with enlightenment. Words, the way is beyond language, for in it there is no yesterday, no tomorrow, no today. That's a pointing to a way of being beyond that domination by by thinking. And then I pointed last time, I think I gave eight ways of practicing. And probably might have been better to have those eight ways and have eight separate meetings, you know, because how many of you totally worked out 
any issues you have with thinking in the last week. Okay. okay. Um, I don't see any hands. Uh, I haven't fully done it either. Uh, but uh, it, it's a lot. So we looked at eight different ways of practicing. We talked about concentration. We talked about mindfulness, different ways of using mindfulness, including uh, mindfulness that uses thinking and concepts in order to go more deeply. Like, again, we, we might say, okay, uh, I'm sitting meditating. What's happening right now? That's a valuable question to ask. You know, what's happening? Okay, I have a lot of thoughts. Can I notice them? Can I feel what's going on in the body? What's going on, the emotions, and so forth? And so, can I use my thinking to label? Oh, that's a planning thought. That's a thought about financial issues. Oh, that's my dialogue with this person. And can I use the thinking to actually help to not be dominated by thinking? That's possible. So we can use thinking even in our meditation. I mentioned uh, working with views, working with intentions. Uh, we can work with speech practice. These all could merit a whole session or multiple sessions. Connecting the thinking with the emotions and the heart and ultimately grounding the thinking in wisdom and compassion. So those are some of the practices. And for most of us, this is almost like, a, these are lifelong practices because it really can take time to work with thinking. And for me, I know in my first few years of meditating, not being dominated by thinking was one of the main things that was happening. You know, I would just notice, you know, I think I've sometimes told you that I was a student and I was living in Germany at the time and I was thinking a lot. In fact, I didn't know whether I wanted to go back to Germany. So I would sit down and meditate and I'd go in out Germany, United States, Germany, United States, Germany, United States. And we go on like for half an hour. And I say, oh, the breath. In, out, Germany, United States, Germany. You know, so that was, that was my experience for my first month of meditation, right? And then after a month, I knew what country I wanted to live in. The, the United States won. And, uh, you know, but but I was really noticing how much I was thinking and planning was some of my main discoveries. So, you know, maybe in our discussion, I'd love to hear how it was for you in terms of how many of you practiced, gave some attention to working with thinking in the last week. Yeah, I'd like to hear that, how, how it went for you. So today, the focus, and I'm thinking I was, originally I was thinking, oh, I'll just do one session on transforming the ordinary habitual sense of the body. But that felt too, like uh, too much. So I'm going to minimally do two sessions on working with the body. <clears throat> and again, uh, I'll have the structure in talking about this to first talk about what our ordinary habitual conditioning is in relation to the body then talk about the direction that our practice goes with the body, and thirdly, talk about practices that we can do. And that'll be really, I think the, the focus is especially on pointing to how we can practice. 
Again, it's not surprising that for me, in my initial practice of meditation, a big way that I became able to uh, have some understanding and mindfulness of thinking was by being more aware of my body. It's almost like it gave a second reference point. And when I was aware of my breath or my body sensations, uh, other body sensations, I was much more able to notice the thinking. And so, in a way, for many of us, becoming more mindful of the body is a very important doorway into our practice generally. Again, in our culture, if we're dominated by thinking, that means for most of us, we're not very aware of our bodies. How many people would say that your conditioning generally was not to be very aware of your bodies? And how many people had, you know, grew up and were somewhat aware of your bodies? Okay. Yeah, and looking around, it seems that it's connected with gender. That... I looked around, I saw of the people who raised their hand for the sec- to answer the second question, there's only one man raised the hand and the rest were women. And so I think there is conditioning generally for men to be more connected with thinking, women to be more connected generally, although you know it's generalization, with bodies and emotions. I mentioned the story I think a few times ago, maybe last time, about how after 9-11, George Bush was asked, what were your feelings or emotions You know, during the period after 9-11? He said, I don't go there. That's Laura's business. Right. Okay, so wouldn't it be nice to have leaders who are more morally, spiritually developed than we were? Okay, I won't get started on that. Okay, but uh, it's a natural question. Wouldn't it be nice to have leaders who were actually more advanced than the majority of the population in moral understanding, spiritual understanding, wisdom, compassion, rather than being way behind the majority? Okay. Okay. So we have, we have that conditioning for many of us not to be so aware of the body, to be immersed in thinking. Uh, and in, in some ways, this could, um, this has consequences. When we're not aware of the body, there often are consequences in terms of how we eat, whether we exercise. There are all sorts of health issues related to a lack of awareness of the body. I don't think it's a coincidence that a general lack of awareness of the body in the culture is related to having a lot of issues around diet, exercise, sleep, uh, and so forth, and gen- in general health issues. And the, you know, the lack of awareness of the body also manifests in the ways that the body often reflects unconscious tendencies that to the extent that we're not really aware of a lot of our core unconscious patterns, they will be expressed in the body. You know, in fact, when I, when I work with people on the theme of transforming the judgmental mind, which gets out a lot of very primal patterns, like I'm not good enough, or could be patterns in our relationships, 
judgments or views about certain people, but especially I'm thinking about self-judgment. I'm not enough, I'm not okay, I don't feel safe. These are very core um, beliefs that are there and relatively unconscious. And what I have found in working with them is that they all actually translate into certain ways that the body is. In other words, our unconscious tendencies organize the body in a certain way. And we find that actually working at the bodily level is one of the ways to transform unconscious tendencies. And so that's, that's pointing to some of the directions that we go when we work more in a more focused way with the body, that we can, we can develop more awareness of the body. I think awareness of the body is one of the central ways that mindfulness and daily life is developed because it helps us to, uh, to take us out of the ordinary habitual mind. I know it's been really, really central for me. I remember once um, talking with John Travis, who was a very important uh, mentor of mine and teacher, for, especially for about a four-year period. I worked really closely. And he's really a teacher of the body. And I had, although I had had revelations when I first was practicing, that I was not aware of the body, uh, that uh, and had really developed more awareness of the body, it still had a ways to go. And I remember talking with John, and I, I think at that point I was complaining and saying, oh, you know, people you know, who uh, live in monasteries or some of the people, like I think we were talking about people in the Tibetan tradition, yeah, they're, they have monasteries, so much support. You know, I, you know we're all trying to make it you know, living in our own apartments or houses or whatever, we don't have so much support. And he said to me in in a phrase, which I really kind of electrified me, he said, let your body be your monastery. Meaning, keep awareness of the body as your continual reminder to be present. And that was such a powerful guidance you know, not easy to do all the time, but but to have awareness of the body in the flow of the day can be a way to stay present, to stay mindful. And uh, that's one of the directions we go. One Tibetan teacher said, if your mind is in your body, there are no problems. And so the mindfulness of the body helps helps us break out of that that uh, mental trance. And again, it gives us important information for our own health, our own well-being, what's happening in our emotions, and so forth. So the direction is that we come to have more of an embodied awareness, you know, in which actually, actually the, the mind, the body, and the heart is, are integrated more and more. I think this is actually very important culturally as well, that the disconnection of the mind and the body and heart have a lot of social dimensions and social consequences. A lot of people point to the parallels between the disconnection of, with the mind and the body and the disconnection with the earth body, you know, that, the, that these are related in, in certain ways. <clears throat> For a number of people... Uh, being with the body is not so safe because there can be trauma 
or a way that uh, body may hold some of our wounds from the past, even even our trauma. And so one of the directions we go is that we learn how to work with the difficult aspects of being in the body, especially if there's trauma or dysregulation, and we can come through that. And I'll talk more about that when I talk about practices. The Buddha talked about the entire world and all the wisdom of the Buddha mind being approachable through the body. He said, in this fathom-long body, with its perceptions and mind, lies the world, and the arising of the world, and the cessation of the world, and the path leading to the cessation of the world. That's code for the entire spiritual path is within the body and within practicing and being aware of the body. A 20th century teacher in the Thai forest tradition named Achan Mun, who was one of the most influential teachers and was a teacher of Jack Cornfield, or teacher of Achan Cha, who was the teacher of Jack Cornfield and many of the teachers who have taught at Spirit Rock. He died about 1950 or so. He said that he, he you know, there was in his uh, biography, it was said that he found a cave of wonders of endless happiness in the body. The body was a a cave of wonders, of endless happiness. As As he gazed through the cave of wonders, his suffering was destroyed, his fears appeased. He gazed and gazed around the mountainside, experiencing unbounded peace through practicing with the body. So how do we practice with the body? And maybe here I'll give a few of the practices. There are enormous number of practices that we could do uh, with the body, a number of uh, spiritual practices. We probably could do, you know, uh, a 20-part series looking at ways to practice with the body. Certainly we could do a day-long or a whole retreat on practicing with the body, and there's so many, you know, Our core practice, though, and the one that certainly I started with, is to be mindful of the body, to ground in the body. We can actually do this in a lot of different ways. Uh, But the initial practices that we might do might be to be aware of the breath. Be aware of the breath, which in the Pali version of the Satipatthana Sutta, the Foundations of Mindfulness text, there are six different practices given for being mindful of the body. And the first of them is mindfulness of breathing. And for many of us, this is a way we first connect in a deep way with awareness of the body. We learn how to be aware of the breath and not be dominated by the thinking. We may also, in uh, walking meditation, learn how to be aware of the body in walking. And this can be a tremendous uh, practice that we do, that we learn how to be, keep coming back to the body in walking. In the text, the first of the forms of mindfulness of the, of the body is uh, mindfulness of breathing. The second is mindfulness in the four different postures. 
which are sitting, walking, standing, and lying down. And for many of us, having learning walking meditation, and initially that could be just by being aware of the soles of the foot as it connects with the ground, or it could be to be aware of the legs as it moves through space with each step, or sometimes the whole body, that just to be aware of that starts us to be aware of the body. And I know for myself initially it was not easy, you know, because the thinking was so dominant. But we try to be aware of the breath or the body in one of the four postures. Or the third form of mindfulness of the body in the text is mindfulness during different activities. During all the different activities that we're in, we're walking, we're going to the bathroom, we're cooking. Can you be aware of the body in the different activities? And this can be really a great area to work with. Say, okay, every time I'm washing dishes, I'll practice mindfulness of the body. And just be aware of the feeling of the water, maybe the feeling of standing, and so forth. So being with the breath, being with the body in different postures, especially probably for us walking, being aware of the body in in uh, uh, different activities. And here's, this is from the text from 2,600 years ago. A practitioner is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning. Who acts in full awareness. This is about being mindful during the different activities that we go through who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away, who acts in full awareness when flexing and extending one's limbs, who acts in full awareness when wearing one's robes and carrying the outer robe and bowl. That's what a monastic does. Who acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting. That can be another wonderful area of practice. Say, I will will practice mindfulness of the body when I'm eating. When I'm... uh, And you can do it with taste and smell. And it's wonderful. It changes everything. You know, when you're really mindful of food and really concentrated, um, cold broccoli can taste better than baklava. You know what baklava is? Like very Middle East very, very sweet uh, pastry, right? And so any of you who've experienced retreats can know that sometimes when the mind is very quiet and still and you're just tasting, there's so much bliss in cold broccoli, let alone normally heated food, right? And so because you're ones just with the sensations, actually there's bliss in the uh, concentrated mind with anything. And so, so being with food, so who, who acts in full awareness, going back to the quotation, when eating, drinking, consuming food, and tasting, who acts in full awareness when, when defecating and urinating, who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. So again, the mindfulness of the body, that that's the third uh, area pointed to in the text. And 
one of the ways that we can practice, uh, that you can try even right now, can you have a little bit of awareness of the body as you're listening? One way to do it is maybe just to keep awareness of the hands, have it be 20% of your attention. You can try this when you're having conversations with people or at a meeting. Can you be aware of your hands or the connection with the chair or cushion? Can you do that at the same time that you listen? How many of you are able to do that right now? At least 20 or 30% of your attention. For how many of you is that hard? Okay, a little bit, a little bit hard. Try to do what's easiest, maybe 20% of your attention on just the sensations of your hands and the rest paying attention. You'll find as you do that more, it becomes easier. You can do that at meetings. It's one way to help one be present, not be so dominated by thinking. Again, these are ways that we train. And, uh, you know, if you're just beginning, sometimes it's best just to try it in the meditation, which is simpler, and see if you can be aware of your breath or maybe of your hands together. You know, and the mind will be very powerful sometimes. So the fourth practice in the traditional text is one that we don't teach very much. This is being aware of the different parts of the body. And this is some their traditional practices where one scans the body and is aware of the 32 parts of the body. And the, partly the intention here is to come to see the body more as a collection of parts than as just this one thing. See it as a collection of parts. And uh, also sometimes to work through whatever attachment we have to the body. And to see, oh, there's the head, the neck. And you actually, in the meditations, you're aware of the internal organs. And it's said that people who practice law, they have actually very good mindfulness, like of the kidneys and so forth. You know, we don't teach that so much here. It's taught sometimes. Uh, there's a teacher in Santa Cruz named Bob Stahl who teaches the 32 parts of the body. And if you wanted to listen to the practice, you probably could go on the website Dharma Seed, where all of our recordings are, of the our sessions, and you could you check out his name, S-T-A-H-L, and look for talks and instructions on 32 parts of the body. But it's pretty interesting. It's, uh, some of you have done something like this when you do scanning of the body, which is a more, much more common practice where you just move the attention through the body going from the head to the feet. And you're just aware of part of the body at a time and try to be mindful of that part. That's a pretty good practice as well for, that goes in some of the same, uh, same directions. Um, I did something like this once I remember something that was very striking. Uh, when I was in college, I was a, uh, I did a lot of work in film. I, I studied a lot of areas. One of the areas I studied was film and I was into filmmaking in college. Uh, and I remember there was a, one of the great independent filmmakers uh, in the 20th century named Stan Brackage came to the university and he presented a film of his which was a film of an autopsy. Mm. And it was very powerful. And about two-thirds of the audience walked out before the film was over. But I thought I would stay. (laughs) 
and uh, and it was a it was a kind of transformative experience. And Bob Stahl actually takes people to actual witness actually witness autopsies. You know, it's I see some people shaking their heads. It's not for everyone, <laughs> right? But for me, my experience doing that was that I went. You know, I started seeing the body as, you know, in the conventional way as a, uh, a unity, someone's body, etc., which, of course, in certain ways is true. But then through the experience of the autopsy, I came to see, I, I went into almost like an altered state where I was seeing the body more as forms and colors and parts. And it was very interesting. I think some of the meditative practices do that. And I remember it was a very striking experience and I didn't I had a different view of what the body was than I had had before. You know, and sort of it felt like I was cutting through certain conditioning in that process. The fifth of the practices with the body, and I'm gonna just ask us to do one of them <laughs> uh, if you if you'd like. The fifth of the practices is practicing with the elements which is one that's done sometimes here at Spirit Rock. And this is to be in touch with the sense of uh, the water aspect, the earth aspect, the air aspect, typically, and the fire aspect. And this, this is a system which comes out of ancient India that the Buddha used and many other teachers and other traditions used. But what one does is one tries to get a sense of the aspect of uh, the solid aspect, the earth-like aspect of our bodies. This would be especially maybe feeling the bones or the kind of the solid aspect of the body. Then we would be with the liquid aspect of the body, you know, which we know is 80%, but it's hard to be aware. So we'd be aware of the water aspects, the saliva, maybe some further aspects of the liquid dimension of our being. We'd, we'd have a sense of the movement of air through the breath, especially. We'd have a sense of the wind or the air aspect. And then we'd have a sense of the fire aspect, the heat, especially in the body. we touch into the, the, the sense of, of heat uh, and so forth. And working with that is the fifth way, traditionally, that one works with the body. And the sixth one is also one that we don't work with very much, and these are called the nine charnel ground contemplations. Very seldomly taught at Spirit Rack, although I think they're being taught now at the current retreat because there we, there's a well-known monastic teacher named the Venerable Analayo who's teaching right now. And this is particularly where we have, um, we may have more of a sense of ourselves as ending up like a corpse. Sometimes they ask for questions. How many people think you will die? And a small minority of the hands go up, right? Indicating there's some spiritual work to be done, right? But we, in the six kind of practice, we may actually do work imagining ourselves as a corpse or imagining, you know, and we can do this practice in various ways, reflecting on the reality of death, reflecting on impermanence and so forth. And so, um, those are the six traditional practices. And we, again, can, can work in various ways to 
be mindful of the body. Uh, we can ultimately, some of the other practices help us to see in investigating the body how um, things are impermanent. We can access more of the wisdom aspect. We see how if we cling to the body, we suffer. We can see how the, the body doesn't necessarily have a solid sense of self, that it's actually many things happening. One of the aims of the elements practice is just to see all these different processes going on in the body. This is from also from Achan Man, from the, from the Thai forest tradition, 20th century. In your investigation, never allow the mind to desert the body for anywhere else. You can view the body as made up of elements. Examine it to see it as made up of different parts or by way of seeing impermanence, uh, suffering, and not self. When any of these aspects are fully and lucidly seen by one's heart, everything external is also manifest as well. So we come to see our own bodies through the eyes of wisdom and it helps us to see the world in that way. That's what he's saying, right? Now, two other things to be said about body practices, and then I think I'll open things up. One is that it's very important to to notice and to see that for some of us, it's actually not always safe to be mindful of the body. If there's any sense of trauma in our history or any woundedness which manifests in the body, we may get instructions to be mindful of the body and we may go into the body being overly activated. And we actually, or in a place where we're not actually in some, we're in the wound or we're in the trauma and we're getting re-traumatized. So that's not helpful. So there's a big qualification to everything that's been said is that we have to know that there's not uh, trauma in our body that overly activates ourselves before we do some of these practices. Now, that being said, there are ways of working with that level of woundedness or activation in the body. And one of my colleagues, uh, Heather Sundberg, has particularly developed practices uh, sort of really, in a very simple way, developed from, uh, particularly from work with trauma that both she and I have been trained in, which is called somatic experiencing. Some of you may know that mode of uh, trauma work. And I would say, first of all, um, if uh, sometimes the body, we can't be mindful of the body because there's too much happening, we're overly activated or reactive. One first possibility is to do what brings you back to balance? If you know something like take a walk uh, or talk with a friend, be with something beautiful, sometimes do meditative practices, can sometimes help, and you would know. But sometimes they're not enough, and so there are three other kinds of practices that are important. <clears throat> and generally, if we get overly activated in our bodies, we want to pull out of it. That's the general counsel. One of the ways to do that is to open the eyes. When you open the eyes and look around, you can even try it right now, look around and see if you find something pleasant that takes your attention. Do that right now. You know, for me, I'm going to the large plants, right? Very, very soothing, right? And 
when you open your eyes, this is if you ever have something happen in your meditative experience or even just in the daily flow, if you can come at, open your eyes and look at something pleasant. This is called orienting. And it actually activates a different part of the brain than the one that is susceptible to the trauma. And that's helpful. So sometimes open the eyes, be with something pleasant. Another is to really connect <clears throat> with, your, with the ground. For a lot of people, this would be to connect maybe with the feet and the hands and, to, and the connection with the ground. And this can also help sometimes to discharge some of what's, what's happening. So these are valuable tools. And then a third sometimes, if the level is somewhat workable, one can go back and forth between where there's some activation and where one can be more comfortably or with, without activation with some part of your experience, especially a part of the body, maybe the hands, the feet, maybe some part of the body feels really safe. And so we would go there and then we go back to the difficult part, be with a little while, not getting overly activated, and then go back. So I wanted to name that because that's a qualification to uh, the practices of being with the body, that we, we want to watch out for that. And that, this kind of guidance wasn't really there until recently in our mindfulness practice. I've met with people who were actually in traumatic activation and were told by meditation teachers, just stay with it. Not skillful. But people didn't know better 20 years ago. Right? But I've met people who were given that guidance. And so that's an important qualification for us. We, we, we want to stay and be mindful when it's workable and when we're not overly activated. And I'll just mention one other <clears throat> type of practice that is not so much done in our tradition, but that is there are a lot of other ways of working with the body that maybe work particularly with the subtle energy system in the body. This would be what one would do in Qigong and some approaches to yoga where you work like with pranayama, that you would work with the transformation and purification of the inner energy system. And this is also done in a lot of Tibetan practices where you work with the energy system, with the system of the chakras and the channels and the winds. And this is uh, quite, can be quite uh, powerful and beautiful practices, not part of our lineage, unfortunately. <laughs> but they can be very powerful practices. We do bring in, uh, you know, and I teach sometimes in my retreats, uh, Qigong, right? And one can do that. I'll just mention that in passing because that is another historically a powerful way to work the practice. So just in closing, uh, and let me invite you to see if there's one practice that you'd like to work with in the next week or the next few weeks related to developing more awareness of the body, what might it be? It might be, again, being with the breath, just in the meditation. It could be trying to do more walking meditation Maybe it's when you do yoga or some other body practice, you bring in awareness of the body. It could be doing body practice during activities, washing the dishes, every time you walk somewhere. Okay, time for mindfulness of the body, right? Could be doing some of the other practices I named with the elements or um, contemplating death. Is there one that appeals to you that you might like to do in the next week? See what that is right now.
And see if there's just one that calls to you that you'd like to do. One's enough. And then I'll close with a a reading from a a Western teacher named uh, Reginald Ray, who's been a very uh, strong teacher about uh, awareness of the body. He's He's more in the Tibetan tradition, but he has a very nice book called Touching Enlightenment, which should be in the bookstore, Touching Enlightenment, Finding Realization in the Body. This is what he says. I'll close with this. To be awake, to be enlightened, is to be fully and completely embodied. To be fully embodied means to be at one with who we are in every respect, including our physical being, our emotions, and the totality of our karmic situation. It is to be entirely present to who we are and to the journey of our own becoming. It is to inhabit completely our relative reality with no speck of ourselves left over, no external observer waiting for something else or something better. I see the global crisis in its manifestation both in the West and the rest of the world as a crisis of disembodiment. So thank you for your kind attention. And we have some time for questions or reflections. Anything particularly about uh, uh, how we practice to be more aware of the body? Yeah, and we'll use a microphone. We can wait for the mic to come around. There's someone, and also right up front here. Uh. Yeah, please, yeah. You didn't bring this up, but it's something that's very active in my relationship to my body, which is I have a source of constant pain. And uh, on the positive side, it's helpful because it gets my attention and I I can work with it. But um, uh, I don't know really what I want to say about that, but it it makes, uh, it kind of accentuates my body situation. So. Yeah. Guess a question about yeah. So working with uh, what we sometimes call chronic pain. Yeah, it's a complex area, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there's. I think there've been some books on that. You know, I think Tony Bernhardt wrote a book on on being with chronic pain, which is which I think is very good. And so there's a lot of different aspects to it. And are you able to do you actually stay with the the body sometimes, even though there's some pain? to use the mic again. Fortunately, it's not so acute that I feel like I have to, yeah. you know, it's, it's just that whenever it's like I, I settle and, and become aware of my body, it's always there as the dominant experience. Yeah. Um, like, again, it can be helpful because it brings me into my body, but it's, a no, you know, I, I also, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm using the awareness of it, but um, yeah. it sure would be nice not to have it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. And you probably have worked with a few different approaches. Uh, again, uh, you know, one would be to do certain practices that uh, don't have you be aware of the body just for balance, maybe heart practices or just bring your attention elsewhere, mm-hmm. right? Another would be, is there a part of the body which is relatively free from pain. You know, I don't know if there are, but there might, you might attend to part of the body, right? That, that would be, could be a strategy. 
Um, and, but yeah, but it, it sounds like uh, probably you've worked through some of the conditioning to be thinking a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Has that been helpful in that way? Yeah, yeah, it has. It yeah. has, and, and also what you're saying is very helpful. I mean, I like for instance, just listening to you today, I I was unaware of the pain for a lot of the time, and when you asked us to go into your my body, I was aware of my hands and nicer things. So yeah, 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 and so try to find that that balance, but uh, that that lets you stay present and keep on learning, right? Yeah, thank you. And so on. I think right uh, here. Hi. Hi. Um, so in my own practice, I guess... A little closer to your mouth. Sorry. Yeah. In my own practice, I find myself sometimes using the wording of like a guided meditator. Yeah. <laughs> so in my head, telling myself to feel the seat, feel the ground, things yeah. like that. I guess I'm trying to figure out a way to do that without so much dialogue in my own yeah. head. Yeah, um, how to use the guided thinking, we might say, skillfully? That's a great question, and, and uh, it can, again, be very useful. What we'd want to look out for if it's tending to take over, right? And we want to try to limit it. So, you know, if it's, and maybe you'll just say, only one comment every five minutes, please. <laughs> or something like that, you know, or, or whatever. So you want to watch for any tendencies for it to feed the, uh, you know, automatic thinking, right? And But that being said, uh, it can be very helpful to have s- s- use of thinking uh, in being aware of the body, right? To actually say, okay, let me, let me be aware of my feet, let's say. Or let me do a scan, and you can name the different parts as you go through the scan. But try to have it be light in the mind, and have, we sometimes say when you use labels, have 90 or 95% of the attention on the sensations, and 5%. You want to have, so one thing, guidance would be have the thinking be soft in the mind, not, not doing too much. That'd be one way. And uh, just, you know, just ask the question, am I using this in a balanced way? And you can experiment, do a little less, do a little more, but it's valuable in having the meditation be sharper, right? When we don't use thinking in investigation, we, we can easily very get, get in a, a somewhat peaceful, pleasant, but not very clear meditation. That's the other side of the danger, right? Yeah, no, thanks. Other questions, reflections? Anything about the ordinary sense of the body and yeah um, I thought I'd come back to this topic of pain in the body uh, you mentioned the subtle body my experience something that I've been using as a practice and it's recent in my experience and seems to be helpful and I was just wondering what you you might you might expand on it for me is um, there's a f- sensation of pain, but also in the same part of the body there's the sensation of the subtle body which you mentioned, which actually doesn't seem to hold the pain. Mm-hmm. And so, the, not only are there different parts throughout the body, but there also seems to be 
they're superimposed. And so I'm able, I've been able to kind of breathe in and hold the pain and then breathe out and feel the transparency through the pain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there, when the mind is very quiet, still, concentrated, and in touch with subtle energy, there sometimes are different experiences even of what we call pain. You know, and I, I know that I have sometimes meditated uh, on significant pain with a very concentrated mind. And at deep levels of concentration, there's not quote-unquote pain. It's just very strong sensation, which actually turns into bliss at certain levels of concentration, right? Um, and the mind is capable of, uh, when the mind is deeply concentrated, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, something, things don't appear as painful in the same way. And then with something a little bit parallel with the sort of the subtle energy body. And again, this is not something we teach widely, uh, even here at Spirit Rock. But um, yeah, there can be just a very different sense. Basically, everything turns into energy and light. Right? And one has a sense of the body as a light body, as a light body of energy. And there's not the experience of pain in the same way. Right? And of course, one can kind of slip back and go back like that. But, and that, that typically takes a pretty significant level of uh, concentration and, st- you know, and tuning into that aspect of the body. Does that parallel your experience some? Yeah, that's catching Yeah, some, so it does, yeah. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very interesting area that I'm personally interested in, although we don't, again, we don't teach it so much here. Um, how many would like to have another session on the body? Okay, how many would say, that, that's enough. <laughs> okay, how many would say, that's enough, let's move on. Okay, because it's, it's mostly that uh, maybe, you know, I would teach further on it, but it's mostly that it, it's really helpful to practice further. You know, I mean, I would say that a very, you know, I've been practicing for 43 years. I would say a very significant percentage of my practice was really devoted to awareness of the body. I would say it was a really major part of my first three years in a really focused way. And then I had this other period of four years where I did a lot of other body practices, some of which I haven't even mentioned here, which just helped me connect more with the body because the conditioning is strong and probably it was particularly strong for me, you know, being, you know, being a student a lot and so forth. And I think some of it's male conditioning as well. Uh, but it was, you know, just, and that was, you know, I was not aware of my body very much, even though I was a competitive athlete. It was pretty striking. I've talked about that sometimes here that just not very, and so for me, it's, but these have been practices which have been a lot of years where that's been my primary focus. And it can take that amount of uh, focus to really uh, shift over. It can take, take time. You may, be, you may be quicker than me. <laughs> okay. So let's close again by remembering the intention to practice. If you want to practice in some way with the body in the next week, bring that intention to mind. And then we offer the benefits of our morning together, our time together, 
to all beings. Includes ourselves, includes everyone in our own circles, but then goes beyond to touch the ultimate horizon of our practice is to, to benefit all, again, which includes us. So take good care and uh, enjoy exploring what Achan Man called the endless cave of wonders. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.